Hey everybody, welcome to this session of the Neighbors Church Podcast and our Sunday morning teachings. This last week, our beloved worship leader, Shua, lost the SD card. So the live teaching is not available. But in all honesty, this teaching is so important. It's the seventh in our eight-part teaching entitled Future Church, where we're covering the various challenges that we face as late modern Christians and rolling out a rule of life around practices that counterform us according to the kingdom of God. I'm super stoked on this session because it's all about politics. You know how fun politics is to talk about. Everybody gets along so easily. Uh, But the reason I'm actually excited out of my head about this session is um, my wife is going to be teaching this session. Um, If you've listened to this podcast at all, or you're part of our community, you may not realize that we have a full teaching team of anywhere between four to five, sometimes six people that are speaking into each weekly manuscript that gets taught for our community. And Alexis has been on our teaching team from the very beginning, adding, cutting, contributing, teaching to the notes, Uh, teaching notes every week. Uh, She's just involved heavily. And so you don't even realize how much her voice and her wisdom has actually been shaping you and blessing you. And so our whole leadership team, including myself, we've really sensed that in this season for my wife, it's time to start making her, her contributions a little more concrete and visible for our community here in San Diego. Now, the other reason that my wife is teaching this session um, is because of actually who she is. Um, My wife is an incredibly gifted leader, and she's honestly one of the most sensitive souls that I know. Her social and emotional IQ is off the charts. She can literally read a room in an instant, whereas I'm just kind of like a block of wood in the room. She's so sensitive to what's happening in the relationships and the faces and the emotions. We actually have friends that say they will try not to make eye contact with Alexis in a crowded room on a Sunday morning if they're feeling it all down uh, because they know Lex is going to come over with just the right question asked in just the right tone of voice and just reduce them to a puddle of tears in an instant. And so my wife in every respect is what we call biblically a peacemaker, a peacemaker. My wife, she creates peace. She makes shalom in rooms and in relationships. My wife is also uh, a practitioner of lavish hospitality Um, she brings people in and welcomes them into a room in such a way that it just creates harmony in the relationships. And so lavish hospitality, peacemaking in a, in the midst of political polarization and hostility, these are the key positives that my wife embodies as a follower of Jesus. And one of our big goals is to push towards these practices, these ways of being and doing in this increasingly hostile and polarized world. So I couldn't be any more stoked for you guys to settle in, listen to this super important teaching on the practice of hospitality, and uh, let my gorgeous wife just shape your souls. In Jesus' name, shalom, friends. Hello, friends. Uh, Thank you so much, Dan, for that kind um, welcome for my teaching. I'm really um, honestly blessed and just humbled that I get to be part of the teaching team and get to start contributing in this way. So just to open our time together, I'm going to read from two texts uh, from Mark 2, 13 through 17, as well as 1 Peter 4, 9, and then we'll pray and get started. From Mark chapter 2. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then from 1 Peter 4, 9, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we just ask that you would come now, that you'd speak to us through these words. We pray that you'd be transforming our hearts, that we would not just be hearers of your scripture, but that we would practice the things that you are teaching us and instructing us. We pray that you would give us hearts for hospitality, to love the stranger, to welcome the enemy. Use us as your hands and feet to further your kingdom in San Diego and beyond as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's safe to say this last year and a half has been a wild one. I think we could all agree on that. One need not look far to find strong opinions on all sides. This last year, it's been a post and say anything and everything that one thinks, feels, assumes, believes in, is persuaded of, and trusts. From COVID-19 is a conspiracy theory to take down the world, to the vaccination is going to fix everything, to Trump is the savior or... Maybe for some, Trump is the devil, or Biden is the savior, or Biden is the devil, or this essential oil is going to heal everything and is the solution to all things. You fill in the blank. We all experienced a barrage of opinion. Now, I remember back in 2007 when I joined the world of Facebook, you'd find posts like, just went on a lovely walk or amazing time in Kauai, tip hike up to the peak for the best sunrise. It was all simple and beautiful and wholesome. Um, But then that carefree and joyful tone slowly began to change. The following year in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected into office, a friend and Christian of mine, a Christian um, that I grew up with, posted the following verses as their response to Barack being appointed to office. May his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. If you're shocked by this, I was shocked too. Uh, It's just crazy. I mean, how could someone wish that on another person's wife and children, regardless of holding different political views to pray a prayer that someone's children would end up without their father and his wife would end up without their husband and just to be a widow was just utterly heartless. Now, fast forward to where we've been this past year, where heartless and non-empathetic and inflamed and agitated and aggressive social media posts are a dime a dozen. They're really more the norm than the exception. 
few and far in between our days where someone, you know, posts a beautiful picture with a lovely caption. Instead, um, our online social platforms are really bringing about the demise of civil discourse. No longer are conversations happening in respectful and thoughtful ways and empathetic ways, but instead these conversations are happening and they're divisive and they're polarized. Do any of you remember the first debate between Biden and Trump last year? It's, this is a perfect picture, um, if we could even call it a debate, but it was a perfect picture of what many of us have been seeing um, and experiencing in our social media feeds. So whether it's over masking or anti-masking or the November election or conspiracy theories or Black Lives Matter, whatever it's been, to some degree, we've all experienced division with another human. Now, sociologists are telling us that our nation is more divided than it has been since the Civil War. A recent survey found that 60% of voters think that members of the other party constitute a threat to America. More than 40% would call them evil, and 20% think they're animals. Another survey found that among Americans who identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's political goals. And that's a substantial increase that we've seen over the last three years. So did you catch that? One in three think violence is okay to advance a party's political goals. That's crazy. Further, another um, academic study found that hostility to the opposition party and its candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty. So what used to just be a normal part of living in a democracy where people could agree to disagree and even have um, hearty debates for what, believed, for what one believed in and to have very political views has now been reduced to if you don't hold to what I hold to and think what I think and believe what I believe, you are an enemy. Sociologists who study the psychology of enemies um, have pointed out that enemies actually serve a psycho psychological purpose. They give us someone to blame so then we don't have to face reality or take responsibility and face our own shame. As well, our enemies can give us the sense of control and coherence um, in the face of evil. It can give us the sense of, you know, this is what's wrong with the world, those people. And of course, in a polarized and um, really, you know, a lonely society, enemies give us a tribe to belong to. The more individualistic a society is like America, the more tribal. Anti-community is toxic, but it's better than not having community at all. So while the digital age has intensified division and mistrust amongst us, political and social polarization is not new. And it's into this world of tribe against tribe that Jesus came and he literally died to turn enemies into family, to form a new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational family of God. Jesus said to us on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus commanded peace among his people, um, and he has called us as Jesus followers to be peacemakers. Jesus is the ultimate source of peace. Now, I want you to note that Jesus was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker, and we are called to be peacemakers. What's the difference between the two? 
A peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is not good. Peacekeepers keep peace even in unjust and unfair contexts, whereas a peacemaker is bringing together enemies at a table to work towards repentance and reconciliation. Peacemakers turn enemies into family and they make justice and truth their centerpiece. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Let's read again from the scene in Mark chapter two. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, I just want you to think about this scene for a moment and to apply it to our own lives. In this moment right now, bring to mind people that maybe have offended you and just hold them in your mind for a moment. Think about people that you've disagreed with over this past year, be that politically or around COVID or whatever. Think of those that you actually consider your enemy. You consider them dangerous. They've been, in your mind, they've been duped and they're now deceiving people with their propaganda or hidden agendas. And from your perspective, they are a perceived enemy. As well, I want you to think of people that you consider less than and and to actually be brutally honest about this. Those people that are deplorable in your mind. Now, I'm not saying that this perspective is good, but I am saying all of us have these judgmental parts of us where we consider others less than ourselves, as did the first followers of Jesus. Now, imagine all these people that you've brought to your mind, you're sitting with them around a table and there's food in front of you, there's candles lit, wine has been poured. How does this feel to have the very people that have hurt you or offended you or that bother and confuse you, how does it feel to have these people that you consider dangerous and enemies sitting around this table, sharing a meal with you? Whatever you experienced in your mind as you were imagining that is just a tiny glimpse of what this scene um, in Mark chapter two is. Jesus had brought together a group of people who opposed each other in any other setting. The off-scouring of society were sitting next to the elites. Tax collectors were sitting next to prostitutes. Political opponents and social pariahs were sitting next to cultural standouts. And all of these people groups despised each other in one form or another. And yet, Jesus brought all of them together to eat with them. Now again, thinking of those that you brought to your mind as you were you know, just thinking of people that you were offended by or that you look down on that you see as deplorable, bring those same people around the table and place Jesus at that table, at the head of the table. And with Jesus there amongst all of you, what changes? And for these disciples back in Mark chapter two, it changed everything for these sinners and these tax collectors. 
Jesus didn't only get them around the table, he actually united them around himself and he made peace between mortal enemies as they became his disciples. Now in Mark chapter three, verses 13 through 19, Mark actually has a list of the 12 disciples. And this list of the disciples is a glaring example of this, honestly, this incredible, miraculous reality. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He He appointed them, he appointed that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them, he gave them the name Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 disciples all came from political and social backgrounds that literally made them enemies with one another. Simon the Zealot was part of a first century violent insurgency group of the far right Jewish nationalists that used guerrilla tactics against Rome. They were also called the Sicarii or the dagger men because they would carry um, these daggers under their tunics. And in the middle of a crowd or a marketplace, they would slip up behind a Roman soldier or even just a Roman sympathizer, like Matthew, the tax collector, and they would slit their throat and then disappear in the crowd. And so we hardly have any modern comparison for such an incredible miracle as all of these disciples coming together from different backgrounds of life, let alone these people with the disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners all sitting together around a table with Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He's a peacemaker. He turns enemies into guests and guests into family. And this is what Jesus does, but now through his body, through the church, through you and through me. His primary call on us is to open our homes, to set our tables and to make family out of enemies. His call to follow him into peacemaking um, is through what the New Testament writers call hospitality. What is hospitality? The word hospitality is philozenian in the Greek, and it's a compound word. Philo means love. Xenos means stranger or foreigner. So philozenian literally means the love of the stranger. It's the welcoming of all as a guest. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality as the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Put simply, hospitality is this warm and generous welcome um, to others through tangible acts of care and love. It can look like sharing a meal with someone or providing care for a person in need or holding space for a person. And really hospitality most simply is holding space for people. Dan and I have been talking together about this idea of holding space and the importance of it. What does holding space mean? Think about in different social contexts when we enter a room and how people enter them. Most of us um, are prepared. Uh, Some go so far as to posture themselves in that room and present their best self. And all of us, I'd say, um, we're seeking to find where we fit in in that space full of people. 
But what would it feel like if we could enter a space where none of that posturing or figuring out where we fit was necessary? The space was just held. In other words, it was a protected and safe and welcoming space. In the midst of societal confusion and anxiety, as Jesus followers, we want to hold space to, for others to be held by God. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to continue what he started. Practice hospitality. That's from Romans 12 verse 13. The word practice in this context literally means to do something with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. 1 Peter 4 verses 8 through 10 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. How? How do we do this? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So too, Hebrews 13 verse 22 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Again, how do we do this? How do we love one another? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, over and over, we are commanded to practice hospitality. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, shares a profound story of how hospitality radically changed her life. Butterfield was a lesbian lit professor at Syracuse University whose speciality was in postmodern critical theory. She was, she is a smart woman. And she was writing a book about how Bible-believing Christians are the problem with society. But for her research, she actually had to spend time with some of these Bible-believing Christians. And afterwards, she wrote this scathing op-ed on Christians and patriarchy. And a local pastor read this article. And so he decided after reading it that he wanted to invite Rosaria over for dinner and thus began a relationship of regular meals and conversation with her. Over time, Rosaria actually came to faith in Jesus through this pastor's kindness and hospitality. He held space for her. She's now a writer as well as a foster parent and homeschool mom and wife to a Presbyterian pastor. This is a true story. And her basic case is that the LGBT community does a way better job at welcoming strangers than the church does. And that as Jesus followers, we need to actually recapture this ancient practice as our heritage. She writes, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. You see, friends, hospitality isn't just having, you know, your close friends over for dinner it's actually reaching far beyond those close friendships and it's moving across the boundaries that divide us, like our race, our class, our politics, and even our religion. Again, it's this new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational family of God coming around the table as this living demonstration to the powers and principalities that their reign is coming to an end and a new Lord and a new kingdom are coming to bear. And it's that of Jesus. 
I've watched my mom do this over and over again. She has this incredible ability to bring people of all types together around food. She welcomes outsiders and refugees and strangers to her table for a meal regularly. I remember thinking this a couple of Christmases ago when she welcomed two young refugee women to our Christmas dinner. And though these women didn't hold to our beliefs and they didn't even celebrate Christmas, here they were sitting with us around a table, drinking wine, eating delicious food and sharing their stories. And it was a powerful experience. I too am the beneficiary of generous hospitality. Much of my discipleship and, and really coming to know Jesus was through my teenage years. And it came through this hospitable and welcoming care of a woman in my church growing up. Pam welcomed me into her home week after week. She wasn't programmatized about it. She simply invited me in. I ran errands with her. I helped her with her kids. I stayed the night at her house. I ate meals with their family and I even went on vacations with them. I was this insecure and unsure of myself teenager who was just trying to find Jesus and Pam's steadfast holding space for me changed my life. I experienced love and belonging. She provided this space for me to talk and to listen and to learn, to ask questions, to laugh and cry. Like the pastor who welcomed Rosaria Butterfield to his table, or my mom who welcomes refugees and outsiders to hers, Pam practiced radically ordinary hospitality and it transformed my life. And the need for radically ordinary hospitality is greater now than it has been in a long time. It's not surprising to me that political polarization has gone way up the past year and a half with isolation mandates and social media algorithms amplifying our echo chambers. We haven't been face-to-face -face with one another, at least in the traditional form of eating together. We haven't been sitting around tables disagreeing in love. Now we're coming to our Sunday gatherings to spend, you know, maybe at most a couple of hours together. Maybe we meet during the week for, with our community group, but largely 20, you know, maybe 10 to 20 plus hours of social media and news feeds are now forming our perspectives about the other. And so it's hard. Our bodies in many ways have been weaponized by COVID-19 and this plague. Dan and I talk about it all the time, how terrified we are to be in Target in line and feel like we have to sneeze. We're like, oh my gosh, I can't sneeze. I can't cough. And it's because we've been habituated by a year of social distancing to see proximity to strangers um, really as a threat and to keep to our own. And that is why more than ever, we have to, we must press into the practice of hospitality. As time goes on and the pandemic um, really just becomes an endemic like the flu, we need to rehabituate around hospitality. We as Jesus followers should be the first to open our homes and set our tables. Henry Nowen in his book, Reaching Out, um, has this beautiful section on hospitality and he writes this. In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Although many, we might even say most, 
strangers in this world become easily the victim of a fearful hostility. It is possible for men and women and obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. As news outlets and social media feeds ramp up, we should be feeding others via lavish hospitality with face-to-face loving care and conversation. And as we continue to make our way through this virus, through this pandemic, our homes are going to need to be, they're going to need to be a refuge for the war-torn and the worn-out person who is ripe for the kingdom. So our baseline practice that we want to invite our church toward is to set a regular rhythm of inviting people into our homes, eating a meal with them, and holding space for them around once a month. Our reach practice is to start, our reach practice is to start doing something like this once a week. So maybe you start with once a month and then move it to twice a month and then three times a month. And before you know it, you're doing it once a week. Again, this is welcoming, of course, those within our church showing hospitality to our friends and stuff, but it's especially for those outside of it. In the meantime, I want to remind you guys, hospitality is both a practice and it's a posture. Nowin again says that hospitality should not be limited to its literal sense of receiving a stranger in our house, although it's important never to forget or neglect that but as a fundamental attitude toward our fellow human being, which can be expressed in a great variety of ways. In other words, what are some creative ways that we could express and embody the practice and the posture of hospitality? Hospitality can be meeting someone for coffee. Maybe you're a college student and you're like, I don't have a table to welcome strangers to. Then offer to take someone to coffee, buy them a cup of coffee and hold space for them. Maybe you can, refu- um, you can volunteer to help refugees and start building some relationships in that community. Or you could hold space for a lonely teenager who's searching for Jesus. Or you could welcome someone new to your neighborhood or your class or workplace or church. Again, it's radically ordinary. If you think about it, we're all eating three times a day, seven days a week. That's 21 times that we're eating and to welcome the stranger into it. We all have space to eat with others, and that's honestly the beauty of it. It doesn't require a program or awkward presentations or these gospel sales pitches. It's just food and friendship with justice and truth and repentance and reconciliation as our centerpiece. In closing, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who founded Liabri, which literally means shelter, Um, He had this evangelistic and apologetics community during the Jesus movement. And hippies were just given a home with the Schaefers and invited to ask the hardest questions. And they came to Jesus in droves through the Schaefers' radical hospitality, through opening up this shelter, the the Liabri. Francis Schaefer gives this advice. Don't start with big programs when it comes to hospitality. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, do what I am going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come share a home as long as it is a real home. 
It's so simple and easy. It's, it's, it's easy to actually miss the power of its simplicity. Our nation is falling apart at some level. And while politics, of course, there's importance to it. Um, the real power, though, is in displays of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven in our homes, around tables with good food and wine and enemies who have become our family. And this is really our dream for the future of the church. We can come together on Sabbath. We can sing together. We read scriptures together. We listen to teachings. We fast together. We pray together. And above all, we eat bread and drink wine together around a table and we remember Jesus. The future of the church is more of that, not less. Shalom, friends.